You're listening to the podcast of the biopharmaceutical section of the American Statistical Association. Statistics. 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 Hi, folks, and welcome to the show. This is Richard Zink, and you're listening to the podcast of the Biopharmaceutical Section of the American Statistical Association. This is episode 87, and it features a conversation with Scott Evans, Stephanie Amakaro, Janet Wittes, and Ji Hong Shu on storytelling and how this is a necessary skill for the modern statistician. I hope you enjoy the episode. Now, I may have mentioned that I am involved with improvisation, at least before the pandemic. And related to our storytelling theme, I'd like to recommend the following book. It's entitled, If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face? My Adventures in the Art and Science of Relating and Communicating by Alan Alda. He wrote this book based on his experience interviewing thousands of scientists for PBS's Scientific American Frontiers. And it features the use of improvisational games and storytelling to help build communication potential. So please check out this book. I want to let you know that the Non-Clinical Biostatistics Conference will be held virtually this year from June 21st through the 24th. Uh, registration for the 2021 NCB conference is now open. The abstract submission is also now open. Oral presentation abstracts will be accepted until April 1st, and poster presentation abstracts will be accepted until June 4th. Check out the biopharmaceutical section homepage to register or submit an abstract. Note that the 2021st Regulatory Industry Statistics Workshop is currently accepting abstracts for roundtables and posters. These abstracts will be accepted through April 14th. No word yet whether this will be an in-person or virtual meeting, but we'll let you know as soon as we hear. As a reminder for these discussions, please note that people are sharing their personal opinions, so please don't overinterpret their comments as representing the groups or organizations with which they participate. Now let's start the show. Hi folks, our topic today is storytelling, and today I'm speaking with Scott Evans, founding chair and professor in the Department of Biostatistics and Bioinformatics at George Washington University, Stephanie Amakaro, Deputy Director at the Division of Medical Policy Development, Office of Medical Policy at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Ji Hong Xu, Mathematical Statistician at the Center for Devices and Radiologic Health at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. And Janet Wittes, Founder and President of Statistics Collaborative. Good afternoon, everyone, and thanks so much for being here. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Well, let's take uh, a brief moment uh, and, and give you the opportunity to introduce yourselves and, and describe what you currently do. Scott, why don't we start with you? I'm Scott Evans. Uh, as you mentioned, I am the uh, chair, uh, professor and chair of a new department at George Washington University, Department of Biostatistics and Bioinformatics. I also am the director of the Biostatistics Center uh, at the at GW, uh, which is a large, uh, a fairly large research center that prim primarily conducts uh, 
clinical trials and other large studies, uh, usually funded by uh, by the NIH. There, I am the, also the director of the Statistical and Data Management Center for the Antibacterial Resistance uh, Leadership Group, which uh, designs and conducts uh, trials and diagnostic studies and other types of studies to uh, reduce the threat of uh, antibiotic resistance and superbug infections. Fairly active in the professional community. Uh, I sat on the FDA advisory committees and been on the board of directors for the uh, the ASA and the Society for Clinical Trials, uh, for example. Um, and glad to be with you. Great. Welcome. And Stephanie, how about you? Sure. A virtual hello to everyone and wishing you all well. My name is Stephanie McCarr, and I started my U.S. government career over 15 years ago, first at the National Institute of Health, rounding out my pediatric hematology oncology fellowship, and then prior to joining the Food and Drug Administration in the Center for Biologics Evaluation Research, or CBER. And after five years in, in the biologic space, I, I then moved on to the drug space in the Center for uh, drug Evaluation Research, also known as CEDAR. In my current role in uh, CEDAR's Office of Medical Policy, I work on cross-office and cross-center efforts in development and implementation of new and ongoing policy initiatives for advancing pharmaceutical development and promotion and protection of the public health. So, in plain language, that means every day I'm excited to work on many dynamic FDA activities that keep me on my toes and ensure each of us can have drugs that are safe, that work, and are available to us when we need them. Thank you for having me today. Thanks for being here. It's it's always great uh, to have some non-statisticians participate and, and uh, give us that much-needed um, perspective outside of uh, the statistical world. Um, Ji-Hung, uh, how about yourself? Hi, Richard. Yeah, uh, my name is Ji-Hung Xu. I'm a mathematics statistician at uh, US FDA Center for Devices and Radiology Health. And my current role is primarily focusing on the pre-market review of medical devices, especially in vitro diagnostic devices, including uh, companion diagnostic biomarkers for post-precision medicine, and AI or machine learning-based uh, diagnostic devices. And uh, same as uh, Stephanie, and she work at CIPR uh, uh, and the CIDR, and I work at the CDH. Oh. And uh, we work closely across centers and uh, to promote and protect public health. And uh, I'm very happy uh, for being here and to talk about uh, storytelling with you guys. Thank you for inviting us. Of course, and, and Janet, uh, welcome back. Um, you participated in episode 55 in 2018 on, on data monitoring committees. Um, how have you been doing? Well, I've been doing fine, sort of. I mean, I'm really dying, as you all know, as you all are, for this COVID to be over. And thanks, Richard, for hurting us. We're, we're Even though we're all at home and stuff, it's still hard to hurt us, and, and you did it very well. Um, so I'm, I'm Janet Wittes. I'm a statistician. I, I have, um, am the president of Statistics Collaborative, which is a small 
unit within WCG, which is the, our parent company. Um, we do lots of data monitoring committees, which is what episode, episode 55 um, dealt with, and, and lots of miscellaneous consulting, mostly but not exclusively with um, pharmaceutical companies, and most of those are small companies. Um, we do some with large as well, but, but mostly with small. And um, I sit on various NIH committees, and I sit on um, currently, I'm a member of the, the circulatory device panel at, at CDRH, but I've sat in other adcoms as well. So I'm a statistician who has, who has hands and feet in lots of different areas. And I'm very glad to be here today. Well, great. Uh, today, our topic is on storytelling, uh, particularly when we're talking about um, statistical topics or, or concepts. And uh, you are all participants in a session on storytelling at the 2020 Regulatory Industry Statistics Workshop. Uh, and storytelling itself was the main focus of the 2020 uh, ASA section leadership workshop entitled Storytelling for Impact. So let's start off uh, very basic. What is storytelling and, and why is it so important? Storytelling to me is being able to have data tell what the data are trying to say. And so very often I find myself sitting at tables, not physical tables anymore, but hope, I hope there'll be physical tables again, with statisticians and clinicians, where we as statisticians talk about some, as some arcane aspect of statistical methodology, leaving our clinicians in, in intellectual, a pile of intellectual dust. And we need to remember that our goal in these situations is to deal with their problems, to tell the story that the data are saying, and because talking abstractly the way we are taught to in graduate school doesn't really help them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Scott, you had some thoughts as well? Yeah, I, I think uh, I agree with everything Janet said. And uh, remembering back to our ASA Biofarm uh, workshop session, I really enjoyed that session. I thought it was uh, really interesting and uh, and brought out a lot of important points. Um, I think stories are, uh, first of all, there are many things. Uh, one One important thing that stories are is they're, uh, they're sort of a tool for uh, education and learning and teaching. Uh, you can think back to you, you tell stories to kids and some of it's for, for entertainment purposes, but uh, a lot of times there's a moral to that story uh, or uh, something you can learn uh, from those stories. And, and our profession is, is full of them. Uh, you know, you, you look at various projects you worked on or, or studies that have been done and you uh, not only learn whether a particular drug worked or didn't work, uh, but um, you might learn something about the way the study was designed uh, uh, or conducted or analyzed and a lesson in there for the next, the next study that comes along. And so I think that uh, first of all, I, I sort of view some of, some of the stories as uh as a tool for educating, uh, a tool for communicating, 
and also uh, a bit of a history book. I mean, it's, uh, you know, stories uh, sort of make up the history books of, and with the historical studies being used uh, for, for learning purposes. And hopefully they bring some sort of uh, order to the, uh, some of the complex ideas that we often have to uh, try to convey. So, uh, and I think this is important for our profession because our profession in particular, a statistics profession, biostatistics profession, has a somewhat of a, a checkered past when it comes to being good uh, communicators. And uh, anything we can use to help us communicate better you know, is is important for us. And so I, I sort of view storytelling as this tool for trying to communicate. And the other thing it can do is it can help you sort of connect and bond with, with an audience, whatever, whoever that audience is. And uh, if they can relate to your story uh, or understand the, uh, a concept that they might, might not have understood otherwise, then it's, it's accomplished its task in terms of uh, connecting you with the audience. So I, uh, I always thought it was a, that the ability to explain complicated things in simple ways is really a very powerful attribute to try to develop. And stories are one way to, to help you do that. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Uh, Scott and Janet Spech, and uh, and you, you, and Richard, you also mentioned the uh, the start of this podcast is uh, inspired by the session at uh, last year, a regulatory industry statistic workshop. So I, I was the organizer for that session. Actually, I submitted the session proposal uh, before uh, almost two, two years ago. Yeah, that's December. So uh, as Scott mentioned. In our profession and storytelling, it's, it's very important, and uh, and and it's the way you convey your message and uh, to build a connection with with the audience, with with your customers. But however, I found out uh, a lot of us is not very good at storytelling, and that that's the motivation for me to put up a proposal to organize a session at uh, at the workshop. And gladly the proposal was ac accepted. Then I was looking for speakers, for speakers with very good storytelling. So I I listened to Scott's talk and Janet's talk before, and uh, I thought those two are very good statisticians with uh, very strong storytelling skills. So I asked them, and they said, uh, "Sure." So I'm very happy to have two statisticians, and. Uh, and I have that I thought uh, because the topic of the session is uh, storytelling with clinical data, I, I got to have a condition. So I, I'm glad I found uh, Stephanie to join us to from the clinician perspective to tell us uh, why the storytelling is very important to interpret the clinical data. And uh, like uh, both uh, Scott and Janet said, um, like we, we like to hear stories and uh, we from like from uh, when we were young from bedtime stories to campfire ghost stories from fiction novel to motion pictures we like to tell stories so when the information is presented in the form of story it is more interesting and lasts longer in our memory so when our brain encounters a good story the 
our brain release the, the feel-good hormone, the oxytocin. This hormone can make us feel good and feel empathy. And it creates trust and promotes connection between the storyteller and the audience. That's why the storytelling is, is so important to build the connection, like God mentioned, between the speaker and the audience. And that's why we, as a, a statistician, we need to have these skills so we can get our message across and, uh, and build that connection. Yeah, and I, I think I, I would just add to that, you know, sometimes I, I find myself um, in the midst of uh, statisticians, and I always like to give the di- disclaimer that I am not a statistician, but I do like them a lot. And so that was um, actually part of um, my presentation as well, just to, you know, let people know that while coming from um, a different perspective, there could really be a lot of those uh, shared insights to actually achieve um, um, the goals that need to be achieved. And I I like Scott's point that um, stories are many things. And, and, you know, maybe this is why there's always a a library, you know, whether on your street, in your home, or now on our laptops and phones. So uh, uh, definitely there there are many stories um, out there. And then I would just say that, for me, storytelling is one of the highest forms of communication or effective communication, similar to, to um, what Scott has said and others have said already. And, and it's, I think it also allows us to say the same things in different ways. So you'll find that what I'm about to say is really the same things that have been said, but in a different way, you know, bringing the, the words to life um, in a way that allows that human connection, that connects the dots of information to, to facilitate giving meaning or transferring your thoughts and your ideas or your data, all of which can potentially lead to a desired action or, as I've read in a quote before, um, as a form of persuasion. So, I mean, really knowing the power um, of what story can storytelling can do to your data or to your information can really um, advance um, the science ultimately. And during my presentation at the 2020 ASA workshop, I also touched on um, the fact that there is science behind storytelling and how a well-told story can activate many parts of of the brain. And um, uh, Jihong mentioned um, release of oxytocin and also dopamine is released too. And all of this, and uh, this in addition to different parts of our brains being activated, actually allow the listener to turn the story into their own ideas and their own experiences. So the speaker and the audience members um, now are having similar brain waves and brain activity. And this is really fascinating to me. I've always been really intrigued by the brain because it's one of those boxes that we truly, um, there's just still so much to know um, about it and that we truly um, don't know enough about. But so ultimately, we in storytelling, we get to share in a glimpse into someone else's brain. And to me, that's pretty, pretty cool. And, and Stephanie, do you think storytelling is as is, is, is underdeveloped in clinicians as uh, Scott mentioned it is in, in statisticians? That's a great question. 
I think it, in some ways, when it comes to the clinical trial space and sort of um, in the areas that I work with, the drug development or, you know, trying to sort of communicate data and statistics, I think so. Like, if I kind of put on my hat where I'm in the hospital, um, walking into a patient's room and trying to figure out what's actually wrong, it's actually all about stories. And I think we do it a lot more there um, than in some of the other hats that I wear. Great. And what would you say are the, the key elements to a good story? Um, I'm happy to start, and I'll try to be brief. I think the beginning, the middle, and the end, <laughs> or the plot, the characters, conflicts, and re- resolutions, uh, the who, the what, the when, the where, and why. And I could go on and on with these <laughs> types of um, adages or one-liners, but the bottom line for me is, Um, And telling a good story is to know your topic and your audience well and to make the information you're communicating real and relatable, as as Scott mentioned earlier. And um, a good story will, I think, will ultimately leave you wanting more answers, um, but through new questions. So those are the key elements for me. I think the story should actually have truth in it, that that it's very, it can sometimes be tempting to embellish a story in a way that that um, is not quite accurate. And so everything that Stephanie said is absolutely right. It has to have all those elements. But the end of the story, the, the message that conveys has got to be correct and truthful. And I, I think we've seen over this last four years, lots of storytelling where the message is not truthful. And so I want to make sure that that's a very central part of what these stories are. Uh, I want to add to one thing about uh, a good story. Uh, as Stephanie mentioned, and you need to hold the audience's attention. I would say the hook. The hook is uh, of your story. A good story needs to have a hook. So, so the audience won't check their phones when, when they listen to your talk. A lot of times when you go to the seminar and you find, you find out uh, the audience, they, they check their phone because everybody has the phone so easy to, to be distracted. So you need to have this uh, hook to, to capture and hold audience attention. And attention is a, a scarce resource. It's, it's very hard to grab that. And... The one way to keep audience attention is to continue to increase the tension in the story. I know for the scientific story, it's different from a uh, fiction novel. You, you cannot uh, put a lot of uh, suspense and uh, mystery. So you, you really need to have, like Jenna mentioned, what's your message to convey and how you're going to present that. And that's, that's, the, that's the key. And uh, you have to present in a way to come. Uh, capture and hold audience attention. They want to keep listening. They they, they don't turn on their phone to check uh, check their uh, Facebook, and they they would like to to look at the slides and want to continue to hear what you say. Like I think that's the, one of the key elements to to continue to engage with the audience to keep them in, uh, attracted to your story. Yeah, maybe I. I... 
would just reiterate uh, maybe some of the same things. Uh, I think the first thing is a story has to be interesting uh, because if it's not that interesting, uh, you won't you won't communicate well with the audience. And so I think that's certainly important. Uh, and as was alluded to before, I, I do think that the way you tell the story, uh, the the language you use, uh, what sort of background uh, the audience has. You sort of have to adjust, you know, make adjustments to how you explain things depending on who the audience is and what they know. And so if I'm talking to, uh, you know, uh, students, uh, my, my, you know, the, my language and the way I explain things is a little bit different than the way I explain it if I was at a professional statistics meeting. And that may be different than if I was uh, talking to medical colleagues. And so you sort of have to make those adjustments. But the other uh, characteristic, I guess, is you, you want a story that the audience can relate to and that it has a there's a moral to the story. There's a reason for you telling it. And, you know, stories that are not interesting or too long or don't have a clear point are more distracting and a turnoff than they are helpful. And And so you have to be aware of that. Uh, I thought Janet raised an interesting question that I hadn't thought of is uh, is how, you know, whether stories are fiction or nonfiction. And, you know, certainly in the, in the past few years, not only, uh, perhaps in the science field as well, uh, of course, outside the science field, uh, we run into the, uh, you know, the issue of uh, fake news and, and, uh, and, um, so clearly, you know, I think certain stories, if, if they're, that are that are uh, that are fiction uh, that are sold as nonfiction uh, are certainly dangerous, and I, I think that's an important point to, as well. And Scott, you you were maybe hinting at it a little bit. How how important is sort of the the, the performance and uh, and conveying the story uh, to the audience? Um, so you could have a very interesting story, but you know how you sort of serve it up maybe is off-putting as well yeah that's right yeah and and i i think uh you know i'm certainly learned some lessons over the years uh you know it takes a little practice to be a good storyteller and and you know being uh having an awareness to sensitivities in different areas and respect for people who uh, may have differing perspectives on something uh, would be important. Uh, otherwise, you're you're not going to be able to make your points if you immediately turn people off. Um, now, some of that's just the way you deliver it, and um, uh, you know you have to wear uh, have an awareness to that. And certainly, even this, you know, of course, been quite a bit of evolution in our society about the acceptance of. Uh, certain language, the acceptance of, of uh, certain perspectives and so forth. And, you know, even, even when you try to be funny, I, I tell a fair amount, a fair amount of jokes when I, when I talk, uh, I try to think carefully about whether I should tell them or not. And if, uh, uh, cause I don't want to offend anybody. They're meant to, you know, the, the, the purpose of telling that story is, to, is to try to, uh, you know, either convey a message and, and do it in a, enjoyable way so that people can can digest it and and uh, uh and enjoyment you know i'm not trying to offend anybody in particular or you know that's not the purpose so 
I think you just have to be aware of that. Certainly, we're learning those lessons uh, uh, sort of dynamically these days. So. Yeah, so yeah, it pays to, to, to know your audience. And so we've talked about some of the key elements of a good story and, and what would prevent uh, an individual from telling a good story? What sort of bad habits do we have or, or maybe a lack of skills um, for, for telling that good story? So, you know, one of the challenges um, that I find about our brave new virtual world is that there's a lot of head nodding that happens when you're hearing good stories that that we're not able to see. So um, I just want to at least let everyone know, um, Scott, Janet, Jihang, with everything that you've been saying, I've been doing a lot of head nodding, but you can't see it. But (laughs) to your to your question about, um, you know, what prevents us from telling a good story. I'm sure there are many factors at play. Uh, For one, I think not having the permission to tell a story. And what I actually mean by this is that some may interpret stories as we've just been discussing um, in a more traditional way um, and think that they're not appropriate for the workplace or or in professional communications. You know, they, they may think that science is based on facts while Stories allow more creative license in order towards fiction. And really, to Janet's earlier point of having the central core as truth is, is really, um, it's, it's an important point that still allows you to tell a good story. It just has to be based on the facts, right? And I think some additional reasons may include not knowing how to tell tell a story or the recipe for a good story. And I really think you can create um, a recipe for a good story. Um, I often think of abstracts in publications. There's all, you know, this is kind of a universal way of communicating information um, to, you know, to your colleagues. You know, there's always um, sort of the, um, the hypothesis or the objective. And then from there, you know, you have your methodology or how did you actually get to try to answer this question. And then you have your results and your, your conclusions. So I really do think that to, to tell a good story, there, there, there's, there's a way you can sort of follow a playbook in, in addition to just being naturally good, good at telling a story. And stories don't need to be long, I have to say, to, to be told or to be good. So I would like to tell a short story that I think shows a bad experience. Um, This is a story about me where when I was pretty young and I was giving a major talk um, at McMaster, it was really, it was at McMaster, and I had so much to say that was so interesting. And I kept on going on and on and on and people started leaving, which got me angry. How could they not be interested in what I was saying? And suddenly I realized, oh, you really have to end. When you say your talk is going to be 35 minutes, it can't be 50 minutes. So that for me was a real lesson that even though what I think I'm saying is really interesting, it's really important to end the story when people expect it to be ended. That's good advice. Yeah, I, I would like to add uh, one thing, uh, one of the challenges to telling a good story is it's our, our brain, our memory. So 
everyday life, we, we have encountered many good stories. And uh, I remember Scott mentioned in the talk that the FDA has a lot of uh, good uh, examples of clinical trials. Of course, you cannot mention the, the company's name, but you, you can twist a little bit. The, the problem is when you leave them, you, you don't remember many of good stories. That, that's the, the famous forgetting curve. So what you said is that within one hour, we human beings tend to forget average 50% of the new information presented to us. Within 24 hours, we will forget 70% of the new information. And within a week, we will forget 90% of the story, the examples of new information. Wow. So, so basically, we, we can't remember all this. And that's why I think God mentioned he keeps the library of good stories with more than 100 different topics. I like that otherwise. And so when you need a story for your talk, an example for your uh, uh, study, uh, for your seminar, then you go to your story journal and find one. That's a, that's a very good uh, suggestion. Yeah, I guess the, the things that come to mind, I don't, I don't know if they necessarily prevent you from telling a story, but um, a couple of things I would mention are, I think the ability to try to put yourself in the shoes of the audience uh, is an important one because the, the way you tell the story, or even if I'm writing a paper, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what does, the, what does the reader know? And until I understand with a, now there, there'll be some variation about what they know, but un, until I can get a, some idea about the, the perspective and background of the person who's going to be reading it, how do I how do I write it, and and how much do I need to go into a backstory or uh, or fill fill in some some extra detail when that they're going to need in order to 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 pick up the story that I'm going to tell. And uh, so uh, at one level we're talking about stories of you know uh, that might be an example that they they're going to be brief and and they have a moral to the story that might link back to some some message you're trying to convey. But even in the bigger picture, any report that you write, a paper that you write, in some ways is a story unto itself. And, and you're, you're telling that story to the audience. And I have to understand how much the audience understands in order for me to write that in a way that the audience is going to understand what I'm writing and, and, and know when I need more detail here or less detail there because they'll get bored. They already know that stuff. Uh, I can move on to something else. Or when I need to s describe A first and then B or whether I should describe B first and then A. And that's not an easy task. It's, it's a hard thing to do. Uh, so I think the, the, the ability to put yourself in the audience's shoes and think about them uh, sort of helps you tell any sort of story. And the ability to sort of step back from whatever, you know, you're in the weeds on some problem, uh, to be able to step back and, and sort of see the bigger picture so that you can explain it in a way that, that's, that's, uh, that people can digest it. The other thing is just time. Uh, we run into this at, at um, you know, professional meetings and, you know, you got 15 or 20 minutes on some of the short talks uh, to get a point across. And you have to balance that time, uh, try to figure, figure out how to, you know, what story you can tell and what you can't and 
how to relate it. One of Stephanie's points really hit me as, as really important. What she, what she said, Stephanie, was that we couldn't see your faces, uh, your responses to us. And I find that it's really hard to talk to a group when you don't see them. As Scott says, it's important to know, to be able to, to focus what you're saying to the audience. And it's really helpful when you can see the audience and you see their faces and you see if they're, if they're watching their, tele, their phones or if they're listening to you. And so I find that the, the kind of conversation we're having right now where we don't see each other and we certainly aren't going to see, don't see the audience who will be listening to the podcast is really much more difficult than the kind of talk when we see the audience in front of us. That's a good point. The uh, yeah, the body language I think, and 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 how you convey yourself when you're when you're telling the story, it, it brings a lot of depth and emotion um, to it, and helps you connect. I think more effectively t to Scott's point um, with the audience, um, and I think Jiang brought up a good point about. Um, you know, our ability to retain information after after it's given. Um, so I think that probably speaks to, to keeping your story simple and, and try to re repeat a smaller number of themes rather than adding too many things and, and making it complicated like a Game of Thrones novel. Um, <laughs> I, I, want, I want to give you each an opportunity to, to tell us a story about data or a statistical topic, um, perhaps by giving us the dry non-storytelling version first and then proceed to the version that will more effectively communicate it to the audience. So, uh, Scott, did you have a particular topic you wanted to, to, to focus on or share with us? Yes, I could uh, just maybe have one or two examples of how I've used them. You know, this semester I'm teaching a course on clinical trials and I have lectures and we talk about, for example, surrogate endpoints in clinical trials, and what does it take to uh, and and there are a lot of questions and issues about surrogate endpoints these days. We we use sometimes use what we think are pretty good surrogates in trials. So when you put them under the test, uh, some of them hold up, but a lot of them don't. And although there's not specific criteria that uh, there's some people who've, who've posed a, a criteria uh, for assessing surrogate endpoints. Uh, Prentice had, had defined some criteria that, you know, the, the intervention affects the surrogate, the intervention affects the clinical endpoint, the association between the surrogate and the clinical endpoint is independent of the intervention, and, and the null for the clinical endpoint implies the null for the surrogate and so forth. And that's there's a lot of statistical jargon rolled up into that, and you'd have to sort of work that through. And But I often sort of use examples from the literature to try to illustrate how a surrogate that may, or, or an endpoint that may be assumed to be a surrogate sort of falls apart. And, you know, I sometimes tell the story of a, a drug called uh, Tradaptive, which, which increases your HDL uh, cholesterol, the good cholesterol, in in patients who are at risk for heart disease that might have low lower HDL levels. And that particular drug was actually approved in 
70 something countries, including the European Union, uh, based on trials that showed it, it increased this surrogate outcome HDL. And so it clearly increases it, the, the surrogate. Uh, there's no question about that. And uh, I know when I'm on uh, FDA advisory committees, for example, we, we often hear, well, this, this, whatever we're evaluating today is already approved elsewhere. And I say, well, yeah, but I'm evaluating the evidence from the studies. And what other people did is a different question. Uh, but it, this particular drug was not approved by FDA, and they wanted a clinical outcome trial to actually show that it, it, it improved or, or prevented uh, clinical outcomes. Um, so there ended up being a 26,000 patient cardiovascular event prevention trial that when analyzed, um, it was pretty clear that it was not preventing cardiovascular events after 26,000 patients. And on top of that, there were, there, was, there were toxicities associated with it. And so knowing stories like that, I think, help, help me illustrate to, to the students I'm teaching about concerns about trial uh, surrogate endpoints and trying to understand the importance of them. And also when I convey or, or talk to people who are designing trials where, who are often just assuming that other people have used this for a surrogate, so it might be okay for me to use it as surrogate. Well, you, you need to find that out. And, um, you know, oftentimes we're making, it seems like these days we're making more and more assumptions about uh, what's going on, and that, that can be problematic. But one of my favorite, uh, maybe if I can just take one more minute, uh, <laughs> I, I often tell a story that illustrates a different point one of my uh, colleagues uh, several years ago, uh, L.J. Way, a professor at Harvard, he, he and I are, are friends. And we uh, several years ago, he likes to challenge me. And so one day he challenged me. He said, uh, Scott, I give you a choice today. You can have uh, drug A, where drug A, uh, the, the benefit of drug A is it increases your intelligence. But it has a toxicity. He said it will decrease your good looks. Or you can take drug B, which would uh, increase your good looks, but it'll decrease your intelligence. He says, which one do you want? I said, boy, uh, I'm in real trouble here. I can't really afford to lose much in either dimension. So, But I thought for a minute, I said, well, I'm a statistician, so uh, I, I probably mean as much as, uh, intelligence as I can get. And uh, so I went, I went with the intelligence. I, I, I need the intelligence. So... Uh, that was the best answer I could come up with at the time. And then about a month later, I got back uh, course evaluations from a course I was teaching. And I started to read the, the, the course evaluations. And, uh, and the first one said, I really learned a lot in this course. Uh, Dr. Evans, he's an excellent instructor and explains things very well. And, uh, and I felt very good about that review and, and that uh, I was happy I was able to give this student something. Then I read the next one. It says, I really like this course. And besides, Dr. Evans is hot. Big capital letters underline. And after <laughs> reading that, I realized, I realized I was much happier about the second one than I was about the first one. <laughs> so in the interest of honesty, I went, I went back to my friend LJ and I told him what happened. I told him the story. And I said, I, I think I'll change my answer. I, I, I think I'd rather have the good looks. <laughs> He said, Scott, uh, first of all, uh, you're a very shallow person, and I don't want to talk with you anymore. 
But secondly, you're a statistician and you should know better. You had uh, 40 students in that course. And if only one of them said you were hot, it's probably type one error. So, <laughs> so that was my story. And uh, I, I sometimes use that when I'm explaining what type one error is. Now, if I'm, if I'm explaining this to the MDs, I often use false positive. That usually plays out a little better. But, uh, and then I go on to ask them that what, which, which one they would choose. And then I challenge them with the question, if instead of choosing for yourself, which one would you choose for your significant other? Would you choose the good looks or the intelligence? And go have a discussion with your significant other about this question. <laughs> but I told them that no matter what you choose, you are going to be wrong. Because if you choose intelligence, they're going to say, what do you do? You don't think I'm very smart? And if you choose the good looks, they're going to say, you don't find me attractive? So it's a no-win situation. I'll stop there. Thanks. <laughs> oh, that's very good. Stephanie, um, how about you? What, what, what story do you have for us? Well, first I'll say that I, I probably would have asked for two prescriptions for, you know, two separate drugs. And depending on the day, I would decide which one I would want to take in terms of intelligence or, 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 or good looks. Um, I, I also sort of um, really still holding on to the, the discussion, um, Richard, that you and Janet had about, you know, just sort of like the, the fact that we're trying to reach each other through our computers, you know, and how do we continue to um, stay engaged. And when I heard you both talking about that, to me, there there's this invisible thread of connection there. And even in, in the stories that Scott was just telling us, there's, there's something that pulls you in invisibly where you're, you know, wanting more and more of the story. And um, so, you know, I, I think it's still definitely possible, I'm sure we all know this, to, to remain connected. But back to your question about sort of, um, you know, giving a story here. When I thought about this question, I really, to me, I always start with what do I know really well, you know, <laughs> and try to go from there because that's where I can give you sort of my my best stories or my best understandings um, from the places that I that I know really well. And so I'll start with the dry version and then I'll go on to the once upon a time version. So for the dry version, um, early in this uh, pandemic, FDA realized that there were rising COVID-19 cases that had actually strained the, the pharmaceutical or drug supply chain. And this led to drug vulnerabilities and shortages uh, across the country. And one tool that we utilized to address the need was through establishing an online portal to facilitate real-time and direct connection and communication with hospitals across the nation for monitoring their, their drug needs and, and their supply inventory. So that's the dry version. Uh, the story version will really get into sort of the facts and the step-by-step -step, um, uh, of how all this came to be. So on a Sunday morning in early April, and I remember the exact date, um, FDA was contacted by hospital stakeholders in New York about their severe need for medications to treat COVID-19 patients. And 
I'm not sure if you all remember, but the cases were really just sort of rapidly rising at that time um, in in New York and actually approaching, I think, the 100,000 uh, cases, which seem like nothing now compared to the 27 million, over 27 million that we have in, in the U.S. But within a week um, of that meeting, um, FDA met with uh, stakeholders from 10 other hotspot states uh, to identify what drugs they needed were, were in critical need for hospitalized patients. And, and we found that a lot of those drugs were in the paralytic and the sedative drug categories because, as you all know now, there were respiratory complications that required people to be on ventilators and, and have um, ventilator therapy. And so within three weeks from that, that, that point in time, um, these telephone surveys uh, were then automated into a web-based survey on a secure online portal. Um, so we rapidly um, built and established like a safe place for people to go in and let us know what they needed at the time they needed it. And to date, over a thousand uh, surveys have been received, and they represent um, a total of 46 states and over 500 hospitals. Um, and some of the trends that we've seen is that there have been a consistently low supply in um, areas, like I mentioned before, of paralytic drugs, um, uh, anti-infective drugs, even trombo thrombolytic drug categories. And the information that we gather that we gathered have have been utilized internally for early recognition of um, drug demand and availability issues on the regional and the national level. And so we've been internally able to prioritize our own work streams towards essentially the real-time frontline needs. Um, and we've been able to facilitate, facilitate improving um, um, the drug supply and, and, and the needs by um, our different tools in our toolbox. So allowing regulatory flexibility, um, things like being able to extend um, use dates on certain drugs um, where appropriate, expanding the generic drug supply, so adding more generic drugs into the, the drug supply chain, and then being able to target uh, our communications with manufacturers. We're always in sort of direct contact with manufacturers Manufacturers um, to ensure a safe and adequate drug supply. But when you're really hearing what is needed, where, think, um, where are drugs in trouble, you can really sort of focus and target those communications. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it, I guess. <laughs> Very good. Um, Jihang, how about you? Hi, uh, yeah. Before I tell a story, I'd like to make a choice. The Scott mentioned the two pills, intelligent pill or the good-looking pill. I, I guess during the pandemic, everybody online, so we are virtual, we are not seeing each other face, and uh, I would rather choose the intelligent pill. Okay, <laughs> so, so here's my story. So I'm going to talk about uh, uh, a common uh, context, is the correlation is not causation. This is a, a statistical mantra, and which means that just because two things correlate, does not necessarily mean that one causes the other. The correlation between A and B doesn't imply A cause B or B cause A. For example, the rooster's crawl 
it's highly correlated with the sunrise. But you can't say it caused the, caused the sunrise. So we now, for the, for the detention of smoking and the lung cancer, we now can conclude that smoking does cause lung cancer. So we, we, people tend to know the, the correlation, but sometimes they can't distinguish the, the, these two things, whether it is a correlation or it is causation. So the story I'm going to talk is, uh, is the one I heard from the Freakonomic podcast by Stephen Dubner. And uh, the, he talked about uh, the TV advertising. So does TV advertising really work? Many people think the advertising caused the sales go up. So it's very interesting. So I, I want to share this story I heard uh, here. And uh, each year, the, the big box chain stores such as Best Buy, Home Depot, they spend millions of dollars advertising around holidays such as Black Friday, Christmas, Mother's Day, or Father's Day. And it seems there's a correlation between the advertising on holidays and the increased store sales. But does advertising on holiday cause the sales go up? We don't really know because companies only run ads exactly when customers were already planning to buy a lot of stuff during holidays. Therefore, the holiday season is a confounding factor in driving up store sales too. So, so in order to find out whether advertising caused the increased sales, we need to control the confounding factors such as time and geographic region. So that podcast talked about a TV advertising study conducted by the researcher from Northwestern University. They examined how similar people's purchase patterns relate to the variation in ads they're exposed to over time. So you know what here's the study found. The study found that almost all brands seem to be over-advertising, and they are earning a negative return on investment from advertising in an average week. The study concludes advertising doesn't cause the increased sale. So there's no causation. It's just a correlation. That's, that's quite a shocking uh, results and against a lot of people's uh, thinking. So that's my story. Richard? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a pretty good one to understand um, to to explain that particular concept. Uh, thanks for sharing that one. Yeah, yeah, and, and sometimes a lot of times when people confuse with this uh, correlation and the correlation, they think it's a it's a correlation, but actually it turns out it is not. There's no correlation. Yeah. Yeah. Very good and. Last and certainly not least, uh, Janet, uh, what do you have for us? Hey, I think those other three stories were great. I will try to tell, tell the dry story and then the not-so-dry story. This is a study, I'm going to be talking about a study, of Biomarin's enzyme replacement therapy, now commercially available as Magbazine, that treats a condition called MPS6, or mucopolysaccharidosis 6. The disease is inherited lysosomal storage disorder caused by the deficiency of an enzyme called aerosulfatase B, which is normally required for the breakdown of complex carbohydrates 
known as glycosaminoglycans or GAGs. If a person doesn't have enough of these GAGs, the GAGs, uh, not, not enough of the, break, the enzyme, the GAGs um, don't break down as they should and their residues accumulate in the lysosomes of the cell. The accumulation leads to physical manifestations of the disease, including many problems with joints, which makes walking difficult. And so the phase three study of this enzyme was a 39-patient study, 19 on the enzyme replacement therapy, 20 on placebo. The primary outcome is distance walked at 12 minutes at the end of 24 weeks of treatment. And the, um, and the difference between the treated and control at the end of 24 weeks of treatment was an average of 25 meters with a p-value of 0.025. That's the dry version. The, the less dry version is we at Statistics Collaborative did the analysis for this study, and Fan Fan Yu, who was the statistician leading the analysis, decided that since it was such a small study, she really should plot each child's values at baseline in 24. Now, what was important is that each kid had two measures of 12-minute walk, one on one day and one on the subsequent day. And she noticed that one child on these two successive days at week 24 had values of 200 meters and zero meters, giving an average of 100. But we both found it very hard to believe that a child who could walk 200 meters on one day couldn't walk at all on the second day. So we decided to look at the text in the database, the verbatim text. And the comment field reported that the child had complained that she wasn't feeling well and she didn't want to walk. The investigator insisted that she was supposed to walk. She didn't walk he gave her a zero instead of missing. So Fan Fan and I, we were actually on an airplane talking about this. We had to get the results, the, the analysis done the next day. And we were dismayed. How could an investigator ignore what a child was saying? So what we decided to do is delete the zero. We understood that if the deleting the zero, we were blind to, we didn't know which group it was in, but we both knew that if the participant was on placebo, removing that observation would decrease the chance that the study would show benefit. On the other hand, if the subject had been on the ERT, removing the observation would increase the chance. But we decided that the important thing was that the zero didn't make sense. We knew it, that our decision was going to influence the result, but we decided that was the right thing to do. When the, we unlined the data, we learned that the child had been on ART. The one-sided p-value was exactly 0.025. Had we not looked at the data in a blinded way, I don't know that the, the, the study would not have shown a statistically significant benefit of ERT. The lessons that we learned from that was make sure you plot your data and look at what the observations are trying to say. When you see aberrant values, try to understand if they are real or spurious. Don't be, duly, don't be unduly afraid of violating rules that make no sense. This rule being, investigators said, you have to walk, kid didn't walk, guess is zero. And remember, you are trying to 
have the data tell their story, and your job is to help the data do just that. Well, thanks for that very good example as well, and, and thanks to all of you for sharing stories. Um, I think it was very helpful in, in conveying a lot of the points we talked about uh, this afternoon. And I know we're short on time, and I just want to ask this qu quick question at the end here. Uh, how, how can individuals better develop their ability to tell stories? Is this just through practice? Are, th are there courses? Is there training uh, that people can do? What, what are your thoughts on that? I think practice is really important. There probably are training courses, I don't know, but practice is important. And practice in front of people that you are comfortable with really makes it easier. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, the practice uh, makes progress. No one is born at telling good stories. And, uh, and the one suggestion I would uh, make is uh, you, you make practice at uh, less important meeting, let's say the team meeting, the group meeting, and you practice more. And those, I won't say non-significant, it's, it's compared to the, to the workshop, to the seminar, to the national conference, the, the step is high. And you want more practice internally in your team meeting than you sharp your storytelling skills. And when you get up on the stage on the national conference, and, and you, you will be uh, very confident to tell, to be a good storyteller. So practice, practice, and practice make progress. I think that's the first thing is, uh, is practice uh, is perhaps uh, most important. I don't know if there's formal, uh, there probably is some formal training about uh, public speaking and that sort of thing. But I think for stories, I guess the other thing I would say is, uh, one, it helps to be a good observer. You see how other people do it. You see how other people use stories to communicate, how they tell their stories. and. Then lastly, to sort of educate, I mean, you have, to, you have to know the stories in order to tell them. So some of those come from personal experience. Uh, others come from some other observation and so forth. And one, I guess uh, when, I, when I started my career, I kind of, uh, and I had uh, more senior faculty around that my perception was that, okay, that these are uh, faculty who, you know, they're going to be very strong from a sort of a, a technical statistical perspective. They're good at mathematics and so forth. And I kind of had, and they were, but what, what surprised me uh, or what I learned early on was that they were more than that, that they, they, they were people who knew the stories they followed the stories, they followed the history, and they followed the developments in the profession, whether it was statistical profession, or clinical trials, they, they followed the stories. And uh, so you have to know, you know, in some ways you have to know the history and, uh, and, and how to learn from it in order to tell those stories. So uh, I guess that's the other point I would make. Yes, and, and I, I agree with I agree with everyone. I think there have been a, a number of different nuggets sort of spread out through today's podcast and story, but I, I just reemphasize practice, 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 as was said. I also think training cannot be underestimated. It, it's possible. Like for me, I, I think I, I would consider myself someone who loves words. So it's um, with that, it, 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 in some ways, it can be easier to sort of um, 
be creative or even playful with words to be able to communicate what I need to communicate. But it, if if you don't necessarily have that um, natural inclination, I, I think it's also possible to develop templates, recurring themes, or even a, a recipe or a playbook, as I as I mentioned before. And I think it really goes towards um, Scott's point of, about their different models or different stories all around us that we can sort of watch and listen to and be able to hone our own our own skills. So. Um, yeah, I think those are all important important parts of being able to um, tell better stories. Well, thanks everyone for your time today, and and thank you for sharing your wisdom on storytelling. Thank you. Thank you very thank you. much. There you have it, episode eighty-seven on storytelling. Do you have an idea for a podcast? Of course you do. Are you part of a scientific working group that wants to show off their research? Want to discuss a new book you've published? Want to dig deep into an important topic that may not get the appropriate bandwidth at conferences? Let's talk about it. Send me an email at richard.c.zinc at gmail.com. That's richard.c.zinc at gmail.com. In the meantime, get vaccinated, practice social distancing, wear your mask, and keep you and your loved ones safe. Until next time.